Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. What's going on? Saiki Kesha de Benge here. Hope everyone is doing well out there in the diaspora, wherever you may be. I want to say uh, uh, much uh, condolences. How do you? I don't know what the right word would be to, would would be to say to the brothers and the sisters and the, the those who were affected by the loss of Dr. King several days ago on the anniversary. Uh, I want to say that uh, our thoughts are definitely with you wherever you may be. He is uh, definitely inspiring us with his words through video, through interpretation, what have you. Same as Brother Malcolm. We'll honor him when uh, his time of departure arrives also, uh, that anniversary day. Uh, I think a lot of people had a very solemn day that day. Uh, it was April 4th. He was assassinated. I could be wrong in Memphis. You know, it'll have to be very history here. And that brings us to today, April 6, 2010, which is actually the anniversary of the mass killings, the genocide, the slaughter, the war that broke out and exploded in Rwanda back in 1994. It's a very solemn time for me personally. Uh, you know, from the DRC, Exaiwa, one in Kinshasa. And the thing for me is... Um, you know, first off, let me come back a little bit. I want to thank everybody for all your responses and all the love you showed during our show a couple of days ago on Friends of the Congo. I'm glad uh, a lot of people saw it as being balanced, not venomous or hateful or anything like that. And I appreciate all your questions that uh, you sent in. I'm sorry I wasn't able to get to uh, all of them. We actually came up with a tally of how many questions came in, and we had about 45 questions coming in, but we just had enough time. So I want to say thank you, all you guys. Wrote me personally, called me personally, and just chatted with me and sent me information and questions, what have you. Um, and that's basically about it. Now, today, uh, this show is entitled April 6, 1994, Something Genocidal This Way Comes. I'll probably play a little music. I'm not too sure. We're going to go on for an hour here. And it's basically to talk about what happened in Rwanda in 1994. Some people want to call it the Tussie Genocide. Some people want to call it the Genocide. But, you know, it wasn't just the Tutsis that died in that, gen- in that genocide. It was a lot of Hutus died in that genocide. And a lot of Twa, uh, the Batwa, the, uh, as the West would call the Pygmies, a lot of them died in that genocide. And a lot of innocent people died in that war, the conflict, the mass killings. Whatever you decide to call it for yourself. And I think it's, uh, I think it's very sad to, uh, when people want to politicize the killings, as tends to be the case with uh, Kagami in Rwanda. But I'm not going to use this time to attack him or slander him. Right now is to honor all those that passed away during that killing. And I think what I'd like to do is actually give you a little history. Not a history like, uh, you know, in the beginning, this is what happened. 
just to give you an idea of what was going on around that time, what was happening, you may have your own point of view. You may think that uh, I'm pro-Hutu, I'm anti-Tutsi, I'm pro-everybody, anti-everybody. It's not really about me. A couple years ago, and uh, we had, we're near a couple of power lines, so I might be going in and out during the show. So sometimes uh, if I fade in and out, just bear with me. They're doing a film shoot right uh, outside the window of the studio, and they're running a lot of power cables. They're doing some green screen work. So if I fade in and out, you know, that's the main reason why, because I had that little problem earlier on our part two of the Friends of the Congo show. So first let me say thank you for tuning in. Our number is 646-595-2892. 646-595-2892. If you want to chat with us, if you listen to the show live on the Internet, you can chat with us live, log into the room, send your questions, what have you. We'll probably open up the phone lines about 6.30. Um, but if you have a question that can't wait or you want to offer your condolences, what have you, that's fine. I know on YouTube uh, about two weeks ago I came across some um, clips of some actors in the game, Forrest Whitaker and uh, some other people, saying, uh, let's not, you know, this is in honor of the Rwandans that died. Let's not forget um, about the killings, and let's make sure it never happens again. And I know to a lot of people, especially the Congolese, their question is, well, you're talking about never happen again, but it's been happening again since 1996, 1998, Congo. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a separate show Probably, uh, uh, we'll say next week. I know I have a show about Ben Affleck and the Congo, uh, Congolese Army defending uh, both of them, which may sound odd to you guys. You better let me explain that time. But probably about two weeks, I'm going to do a show called Invasion to Genocide. You can probably call it part two of this show. It's uh, based on a presentation I did back in 2004 when uh, His, Ex- His Excellency Ambassador Ilika, our permanent resident, uh, ambassador to the United Nations, uh, came to Los Angeles. It was a very, very, very emotional, very informative, very powerful visit of his. Congolese came from everywhere and showed the love. I mean, there were some Congolese who I didn't know were in L.A. Some, a guy came from San Francisco, five hours to be here. And I gave this presentation at that time. And I, it was actually a modified version of a presentation that I showed, I believe it was 2002 in Washington, D.C., uh, when Kahindo... Uh, my God, Matubashi, uh, cool Congolese sister into meeting things like that. We haven't spoken in a long time, so hopefully she's doing well. If anybody knows her out there in the D.C. area, please tell her I said hello. She was hosting an event where uh, Ambassador Faita Matifu, our ambassador to the United States, attended. And I gave this presentation then, and it was very well received. I'd like to see the video of that footage of that presentation, but what I understand, from what I understand, the guy that was videotaping was so into the presentation he forgot to videotape. This. He forgot to videotape my presentation. But people, as a Rod Shah out there in uh, D.C. and those guys, they they remember it vividly. Uh, Rod uh, Shah is on my Facebook, and he remembers being there. So I want to show the love. But um, I'll do that. Uh, a show will be called, entitled either "Invasion to Genocide" or it'll be, it'll be called yes, it'll be called entitled "Invasion to Genocide." So, but I have a different name, which you'll see it on my uh, page here. Uh, you'll see it there on my Facebook and what have you. Uh, to all you guys that have submitted, not submitted, that have uh, want to friend me on Facebook, thank you for the love. Um, again, today's show is going to be about the Rwandan genocide, and there's been a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of myths and things like that. And I think when you see movies like Hotel Rwanda and what have you, um, you you're under the impression that the Bahutu were a, a bunch of, you know, big bad wolves and the Tutsis were little Snow White being slaughtered. And that wasn't really the case. And a couple years ago, I'm going to share some personal stuff with you because you, you know, just to give you an idea where I'm coming from and why I want to do the show because a few people were asking, why are you going to do the show about the Rwandan genocide? You're not Rwandan, what have you. You know, look, I talked about the, the killings in Cambodia. You know, I'm not Cambodian. I marched with the Armenians when they do their walk around the block in uh, Los Angeles. It's a show of solidarity. All right, and uh, at New Design Charter School, where I teach the uh, law and diploma, where I coordinate the Law and Diplomacy Academy, uh, and I actually teach law and diplomacy to ninth graders who are really smart and intuitive beyond people's uh, expectation, I expose them to things around the world because it's a global world, and I want to understand that you know there are people suffering, there are people exceeding all over the planet. 
Now, a couple years ago, I was at my uncle's, Dr. Martin Cabongo, down in San Diego. And I believe it was New Year's Eve. And I was just, you know, down there, and he had visitors over and things like that. And what happened was, a shout-out to the, the uh, Wakabunga clan in San Diego, Chalumba and all those guys, and Kanku and, and all the other cats, and um, Mwamba. And Mama Man with the, the other guy with the glasses, who always had eight different names when I talked to him. But anyways, um, and Madame and my little uh, sister down there, my little niece also, uh, I was at his house, and it turned out this little kid kept following, ar- following me around um, his house. And I was always talking to this little kid. I think he was about maybe nine, ten, about nine, ten years old, something like that, maybe 13. I'm not too sure. And anyways, he kept following me around. And I was like, okay, how are you? What's going on? And he's like, hey, fine, this, that, this, that. And I noticed he had an accent. So uh, during the evening, I talked to my uncle, and I said, who's this kid? He goes, oh, that's, you know, he's here with his mom. I said, okay, fine, but, you know, you know, uh, I asked, I said, okay, no problem. I went back to the kid, and he's following me around, and I think people thought he was my son. So I sat down, we started talking, and I said, you know, you know, where are you from? And he said, he's from Rwanda. I said, okay, cool. So I gave him a love, you know, I gave him a hug, blah, 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 you know, and we just cooled out, and he just kept following me around, I guess, because I kept talking to him, so it's not my fault. So later on, I talked to my uncle, we were talking, and I said, you know, he's from Rwanda, but, you know, which ethnic group is he? I was just kind of curious. I don't know why I asked that question. He goes, he's a uh, Tootsie. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. So I walked over to the kid, and he just, you know, I didn't have to walk over because he was, like, standing 15 feet from me. And we was asking about, I was asking about his school and things like that. He wanted to get into movies, whatever. So I asked him to take, to take a picture with me and him together. And when I looked at the picture, I remember looking at him while we were taking the picture, and I said, what kind of hatred existed in 1994 Rwanda where they were killing kids like this kid. It really was a reflective moment for me. I said, what? Because, you know, I didn't live in Rwanda, but I have a lot of friends from there, but I didn't live there during that situation. I, I knew of the situation, you know. People talk about Mandela in South Africa, but people didn't know it was kind of neglecting uh, Rwanda. Most of the journalists was in South Africa. So I looked at the kid and I said, what kind of hatred would result in this child being murdered, slaughtered or whatever? What was going on? And it really did something to my heart to say that, you know, this kid has nothing to do. This kid could be the guy that could grow up to cure cancer or stop the wars or whatever. So it just really stayed with me. And every time I see the picture, I'm sure if people want to show that picture on, they say, oh, he's, you know, he's pro-Tootsie and stuff like that. But, you know, think what you're going to think. And that just really stuck in my mind that moment to this day. Now, what happened was, hey, Mr. Trent, how are you? You're going to ask me what? <laughs> uh, this is Mr. Trent here from BR Airsoft. Um, thank you for tuning in, my friend. Thank you for tuning in. What's going on is that a, a year later, I was speaking, I was giving a presentation at uh, Cal State Sacramento. I think the UC Sacramento won the, Sac- the schools up there in Sacramento. Uh, John Pendergrass was the keynote speaker, and I was doing a presentation called African Heroes Day, where I talk about African heroes, obviously. I remember, I didn't realize, though, that the, the, the plenary and the, the, the gathering, the uh, I don't say a convention, the meeting or whatever it was going to be, conference was centered. Oh, there you go, Miss Hotel Rwanda. All right, I'm glad I answered the question, my friend. Um, I remember it was the conference was about the Rwandan genocide. I had no idea. I just had to be up there doing a presentation. So I said, okay, I'll hang out and check it out. And, you know, one thing that kind of stood out was that when a lot of people were talking, there was a lot of intellectuals there, a lot of academics were there and talking about the Rwandan genocide and things like that. I was like, okay, whatever, you know, hear what they had to say. But when I look in the back, there was a uh, man and woman back there, um, you know, uh, black, uh, black folks, um, selling some magazines. So I walked over there and looked at a magazine, started talking to them. And apparently it was a book about uh, some person, a person surviving the Rwandan genocide. I said, okay, fine, you know, there's some issues I have with the book, but that, this isn't the time or place for it. So I started talking to him. Now, if you hear me talking, don't really know me. You'll think I'm from America. I grew up, you know, I was born here. All right, so I was talking to them, and I asked her, you know, okay, you know, what's going on? I saw the last one. I said, okay, that is a great book. Why are you doing the book? Whatever. It turned out they were both Rwandan Tootsies, you know. I said, okay, cool. So I asked her what she thought about Rwanda's invasion into Congo. And she said to me, her name is Arlette, beautiful sister. You want to get into Mali and acting. I hope she's doing well. She's up in Canada. Beautiful sister, intellectually, you know, uh, outside and inside. It was a great conversation. But she says she understood why Kagame invaded Congo the first time, but she didn't agree with him reinvading Congo the second time. 
okay, fine. You know, so we had a conversation with that, and I didn't attack her. Now, I went back, and I bought a book, make sure I had a sign to show the love. It's his story. It's not my story. It's not like a dog, his story. I went back, and I was hearing this, the rest of the, the conference, and they kept talking about Rwanda, but I noticed there was no Rwandans on the panel. None. And I noticed they had two in the, they had my friend Arlette and they had another guy, uh, the guy I guess turned to be her husband or what have you, sitting back there. That really bothered me because they were talking as though they didn't exist. Like, you know, like uh, uh, they were talking about Rwanda the abstract, like those two were a bunch of pets or something like that. That I really got resented. So I went back over there and I said, Arlette, we need to talk. She goes, what's going on? I said, you need to speak. And she said, why? I said, because they're talking about Rwanda, about the genocide. No one up there was in Rwanda. No one was up there lost family in the genocide. No one up there was affected by the genocide. You are. You were. You, you were there. You lost people. But yet you're sitting back here, in, literally in the shadows. I mean, they're like literally almost in the corner of the room. You need to go up there and speak. And she goes, well, what am I supposed to say? I'm like, she, she goes, what am I supposed to say? I said, I'll tell you. No, I'm not going to tell you. You're going to know what to say. Let's go. So I grabbed her hand, and that's when I, get, I got an idea that might be her man, because he had this look like, hey, what's going on? But whatever. I walked her up there. And someone said, are there any questions? I said, I put my hand up. They said, yes, sir. What's your question? I said, well, I don't have a question, but I think this young lady here should speak on what's going on in Rwanda because she's a Rwandan Tutsi, you know, whether she's a Rwandan Tutsi or whatever. She still lost people in the genocide, and I think people should hear what she has to say about Rwanda, what she has to say about what's going on after the genocide and how it affects people. And she was shaking. To this day, I can remember she was shaking. So they said, okay, these are all these intellectuals and stuff like that, and they all stopped and looked at her. And she said her words, she spoke for about maybe 10 minutes, rocked the room. People would just move, miles hit the floor. And she was shaking because she knows, I guess she wasn't used to being put in the spotlight. Said her words, people gave her, you know, a light ovation and went and sat down. And she thanked me for that. And I said, hey, you know, no problem, whatever. And I left. We talked a couple years later. Um, we lost touch for a little while, and she reached out to me. And we're going to get into the memorial here. I haven't forgotten. I want, you, I want you to understand why I'm doing this, okay? Now, a couple years later, we talked about, you know, we got in contact, we reconnected, whatever. She said, I want to thank you. She goes, why? She goes, I've been going around the country speaking about what happened in Rwanda. I'm like, good. I'm glad to hear that, all right? She says, I, wouldn't, I would never have done that if it wasn't for you that day forcing me to speak to these people in that room. That got my confidence up, and I want to say thank you for that because now I'm able to tell my story and hope to bridge the gap between the, the different groups in the country. I was very moved by that, and I said, you know, thank you. I'm glad you're speaking your story. I'm, I'm honored to be a part of your initiative or the, 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 the uh, impulse, not the impulse, the, uh, the, the spark, the thought to do it. We haven't talked in a while, but I want to share that with you. Her name is Arlette, and she lives up in uh, Toronto, I believe, or TDOT. Now, this comes to today. People... I'm going to give you a little story about what happened in Rwanda. If you have any questions, I'll try to get to you. If you're going to call in, again, our number is uh, 646-595-2892. I'll let you know when I open the lines, but just bear with me. And I want to share a story because today's show is, again, entitled April 6, 1994, Something Genocidal This Way Counts. Now, you have to understand that the war that began, and again, this is, you know, people may have their own take, and I'm letting you know how it went down you know, from my research and interviews and things like that. The war that began in 1996-1997 in the Democratic Republic of Congo, then known as Zaire, has its roots in the 1994 Rwandan genocide, all right? But the events that led up to the 1994 mass killings actually began four years later in 1990. On October 1st, 1990, while Presidents Yuri Museveni of Uganda and Juvenile Habyarimana of Rwanda attended a lecture organized by, the, by UNICEF on the Third World Childhood Problems. It was a symposium on issues that had to do with childhood uh, around the world and things along those like nature. Uh, Fred Rigimia, I mean, all these names always get me, but his name is Fred, and his last name is uh, Rigyema. I hope I'm pronouncing it right, or Rigyema. It's R-W-I-G-Y-E-M-A. I'm living off the top of my head by memory here. Uh, founder and head of the Ugandan-based Tutsi-dominated militia, the Rwandan Patriotic Front. It was formerly known as the Rwandan Alliance for National Unity. He led 10,000 RPF exiles and Ugandan NRA um, military men within 60 miles of Kigali. 
The reasons why uh, Fred was in Uganda is that when Rwanda got their independence back in the day, or they saw the independence movement coming, the Tutsis who had dominated the government at that time, the kingdom, whatever, many of them fled into DRC, into Congo, then Zaire, into Burundi, Tanzania, what have you. Many fled to Uganda, and many were involved when Uganda, when Museveni took power. So the, the uh, intelligence agency was actually run by Paul Kagame, who was the current president of Rwanda. The problem is that the Ugandan soldiers were saying, look, there's too many Rwandan Tutsis here. They need to go. Museveni was like, well, we have a problem. He goes, yeah, we, the army was like, we do have a problem. You get rid of them or we'll get rid of you. But there was always the intent of, of these people, the, uh, the uh, Rwandan exiles, of coming back to Rwanda to take power. So in this invasion in 1990, I believe it was 1990, uh, Fred, General Fred, he led 10,000 RPF exiles in Ugandan NRA within 60 miles of Kigali, which is the Rwandan uh, capital. Sadly, on October 2nd, 1990, Fred, General Fred uh, Rigema, was killed by a sniper as the RPF assault closed in on Kigali. And upon his death, his second-in-command took charge of the RPF. That would be Paul Kagame. Paul Kagame at that time was at Fort Leavenworth in Kansas. He was training with the U.S. military. Even though he was a Rwandan by birth and he was a Rwandan exile in Uganda, he was actually in the United States under a Ugandan passport. So as far as people else was concerned about, he was, you know, Ugandan. But yeah, he was a Rwandan. So when Fred was assassinated, Paul stopped whatever he's doing in Kansas City and went back to Rwanda, went back to Uganda to lead the RPF and the invasion. All right? On February 5th, 1993, the RPF violated the July 1992 ceasefire and launched a massive attack along the northern front and rapidly, and rapidly drove back the Rwandan government troops. The civilian population also fled south, joining hundreds of thousands of persons of people displaced earlier in the conflict to make a total of some one million displaced, about one-seventh of the total population of Rwanda. If you don't believe me, check out the Human Rights Watch report in 1990, the 1990 report, 1999 report. It'll break it down to you. Are you with me? Now, what had happened was Rwanda, uh, Museveni met Javier Amana in Zaire, I believe in Ecuador, at the behest of Mobutu. And that's where Museveni said to Javier Amana, look, you need to take these Tutsis back, you know, they, they, they have to go. But Rwanda being a small, landlocked country, Javier Amana said, well, this basically, we don't have no room to take them. Where do we want to put them? So it was basically at that point that there were several attempts to assassinate Javier, Javier Amana to make way for the RPF to take power in Rwanda. And at that time, Javier Amana, the president of Rwanda, was driving. And after the assassination attempt, he started flying around. He didn't want to be on the road anymore. But anyway, so... Before that led up, that time Rwanda's economy was strong. It was endorsed by the World Bank, the IMF, what have you, a little earlier. Uh, but what happened is that the main effort was coffee. So what Museveni did, the president of Uganda, he cut off the roads preventing the coffee to be ex from being exported from Rwanda. And if you look at the economic data at that time, that's when coffee prices started to shoot up. But he basically was choking uh, Rwanda economically. All right? Now, again... We are still in 1990. We are now in 1993. We are now in 1994. And this is where something genocidal this way comes. But first, let me introduce the players. First, let's talk about Paul Kagame, born October 1957 in the Gitarama Prefecture, which is western Rwanda. His family fled Rwanda in 1959 with thousands of other Tutsis into Uganda, Kenya, and Tanzania. He was a refugee for 30 years in the Shugezi refugee camp near Barara which is Western Uganda. In early 1980, he traveled to DRC Congo, then known as Zaire, and spent time in Goma. No, I'm sorry, he spent time in Boma, Risheru. In late 1980, for seven months, he studied intelligence in Tanzania. He returned to Uganda to help Museveni overthrow Ugandan President Obeti. From 1986 to 1987, he studied in Havana, Cuba. 1987 to 1990, he returned to Uganda, headed the military intelligence in 1990 for several months. Uh, while trained by U.S. Special Forces in the United States Army Command and General Staff College located at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. That is Paul Kagame. The next player is Yoweri Kaguta Mosaveni. He's the president of Uganda. He was born in Ankola, western Uganda. And his name is the name taken from the Abu Suveni, Ugandan serviceman in the 7th Regiment of the King's African Rifles. He is ethnically related to the Hema group in northeast Congo. Remember that name, Hema. When we talk about the invasion to genocide. The next player, 
former president of Rwanda, Juvenel Habiramana. Former president of Rwanda, he was born March 8, 1937. He was assassinated April 6, 1994, when the plane was shot down, and we'll get into that. Next player is Cyprian Tariyamira. Again, I'll say that again. Cyprian Tariyamira. Hopefully I'm not killing the name. Bear with me. He was, a, he was born in 1956. He was assassinated August 6, 1994. He was the former president of Burundi, Burundi, which is south of Rwanda. It's basically the same ethnic comp- composition as Rwanda. He had replaced Melkor and Dabaya. And I always get these names a little mixed up because I'm not saying with the right accent, so bear with me. Uh, Melkor, last name is spelled N-D-A-N-D-A-Y-E, Dandaya. He was a Hutu, the first democratically elected president of Burundi since independence. But President Melkor was assassinated by the mostly Tutsi Burundian army led by Paul Boyoya. The next player, Ali Hassan Mwinyi. He was born May 8, 1925. He was the former president of Tanzania from 1965 to 1985. Three heads of state met in Tanzania on the invitation of the Tanzanian president, which we'll say President Ali for now just to keep it short. Because what causes problems when it comes to Africa and talking about what's going on is the names will just throw people off. And if you're not used to the names, you know, just forget it. You're like, okay, I don't even understand the names. So I'm going to understand the conflict. So I hope I'm making it easy for you. Not easy, like stupid, but more simplified. So are you with me? Let's ride. Again, three heads of state met in Tanzania on the invitation of Tanzanian President Ali Hassan Mwinyi. Uh, that was the president of Burundi, president of Rwanda, right? President of Mosavani of Uganda. So we have three presidents in Tanzania discussing the Arusha Accords, all right? The late Congolese dictator Mobutu Sese Seko was invited, but on last-minute advice from his chief of security, and having already met with Juvenel and Cyprian in Ecuador, Mobutu declined to attend the conference. They were trying to get everybody there, but the security chief for Tanzania talked to the security chief of Zaire, Zaire at that time, and said, something is going on. Do not let Mobutu come to Tanzania. So Mobutu said, I'm not going. During the conference, Mosevini, I'm giving you an abridged version here, Mosevini showed up, gave his words, but people noticed that Mosevini was talking longer than usual. At that time also, the General Delari from the Canadian uh, Euromer, if I'm pronouncing that correct, uh, Ugandan, uh, I'm sorry, United Nations Mission for Rwanda, bear with me if I don't have the acronyms correct, um, he was also present, and people just know that Mosevini kept talking to the point where it started getting dark. During that time, at a reception, uh, General Delari walked on and asked people, asked somebody, an often uh, weird question. He said, what, what is the line of succession in case something happens to the Rwandan president? And that would be Harry Mana, the guy he, talked about, he spoke to didn't know. The, it was time for the uh, Tanzanian president said, okay, it's time to go. Thank you for coming. But the pilots of the Falcon 50 that brought in Cyprian and Juvenel, would you say the presidents of Rwanda and Burundi, said it wasn't safe to go. Can we go the next day? Now, president uh, of the Tanzania president said, well, there's not enough room, and, you know, uh, we, might, we can't make accommodations for you, what have you. Now, for those that know anything about politics in any country, particularly Africa, Asia, or Latin America, if, if never not mind one head of state, but if two heads of state are in the country and they don't want to leave until the next day, you know the president will clear out an entire city block of homeless people if they have to to make sure they have a place to stay. But yet president of Tanzania said, you're going to have to leave tonight. It wasn't safe to fly out, the pilots were saying, but they had, to, they had no choice. Now, there were three private jets. When the Falcon 50 took off, only one of them was allowed to leave. That was the plane carrying the presidents of Rwanda and Burundi and chief of staff from the military of Rwanda, and I believe some chief of staff of Burundi also. All right? The plane took off. It was a Falcon 50 private jet, and on April 6, 1994, at 8.23 p.m., it was shot down by a surface-to-air shoulder-firing missile allegedly purchased by Uganda from the former Soviet Union in 1987. A surface-to-air missile was shot, missed the plane the first time. The second um, missile went up. I believe it clipped the wing, blew up. The plane crashed into the garden of the presidential palace uh, outside of Kigali. Now, at that time, the pilot wife was on the ground, was listening to communications uh, between the pilots in the cockpit. And she was picking up a tra- uh, broadcast of somebody on the air asking the pilots who was on board the Falcon 50, who was on board the plane. 
the gentleman in the pod responded, who's this? And they said, you know, that's not, you know, basically said, that's not important. This is so-and-so. We want to know who is on the plane. The pilot understanding protocol and security didn't respond, didn't give the information, and turned off, uh, just switched frequencies to another channel, switched the channel to another frequency. I apologize. As the plane came in, as I said to you, one missile went up, missed the plane, second missile went up, hit the plane, the plane crashed, killing everybody on board. Now, eight key links to remember. On April 3rd, 1994, Kagame put the RPF on alert to invade Rwanda. April 6th, according to the security official's testimony uh, that came up later on, a few minutes before the Rwandan and Burundian presidents board the 1050, the chauffeur of Gasana Antate, Rwanda's ambassador to the United States, tells other chauffeurs that Javier Amana and Cyprian would be killed. April 6th at 8.23 p.m., the Falcon 50, I'm off by two minutes, five, uh, five minutes here. April 6th at 8.23 p.m., the Falcon 50 is shot down in Rwanda. April 6th, right after the crash, the Rwandan military, the FAR, a Rwandan Force Army, uh, radio communication station at Gisenyi, and a Togolese captain, Mr. Apedu of Minyur, I pronounced that incorrectly, I apologize, that's M-I-N-U-A-R, that's the acronym for the Mission of the United Nations for Rwanda, all observed the same radio message, the target is hit, quote, the target is hit from the RPF, the Rwandan Patriot Front, who were based in Uganda. April 7th, the mass killing begins. April 7th, the United Nations peacekeeping force in Rwanda sends Belgian soldiers to escort President, the, President, the Prime Minister uh, from home, her home to Radio Rwanda to broadcast at dawn asking for national calm because now she's basically in charge. Now, the last time I'm going to try to attempt, but from now on we'll refer to her as the Prime Minister. Her name was uh, Awalengi Yimana, but I refer to her as Prime Minister because I don't want to disrespect her family or her, uh, her reputation by mispronouncing her last name. She was escorted from her home to Radio Rwanda to broadcast at dawn asking for national calm. Her house was guarded by five Ghanaian UN troops on the outside, plus 10 Belgian troops, with the Rwandan presidential guards uh, inside the house also. The presidential Gondamine inside her house disarmed the Belgians and the Ghanaians, shot and killed the prime minister and her husband, confiscated their bodies, then took the Belgians back to a military compound where they were hacked to death with machetes. You can follow this up. April 7th, Kagame sends Claude Deswati and Charles Mulagendi to New York and Washington to stop the United Nations and the United States from military inter- intervening during the first week of the mass killing. Listen to what I'm saying to you. April 7th, Kagame sends Claude Dassiati and Charles Mulagendi to New York and Washington to stop the United Nations and the United States from, military intervening, from militarily intervening during the first week of the mass killing. April 9th, the Arusha Accords, which they were negotiating, was to be implemented. President Kagame sent two gentlemen to the U.N. and the United States and said, if you send anybody, we will fight you also. He knew this because the United States had troops in Burundi, in Bujumbura, the capital of Burundi. So when Kagame's going around crying and moaning about how no one came to help, you see what was going on. He told them, you come to the country, we will fight you. All right? On April 8th, two days after the plane was, to be shot, was, was shot down, that date was when the Russia Accords was supposed to be implemented and they were going to do a power-sharing agreement. But President Kagame, then General Kagame, didn't want uh, to share power. He wanted total power. All right? We continue. Now, the question is, why would Kagame want to avoid Arusha Accords mandated elections? Because in a country where 80% of the population is Hutu, the Tutsi-led rebellion force would have stood no chance to win any national and regional elections. De facto, the FPR's political campaign experienced in the free election, which took place in the demilitarized region of Tam Tan in July, July, September 1993, was disastrous. During these elections, all parties, including the FPR, uh, Kagame's party at that time, were allowed to participate. Nevertheless, President Javier Amano's party conquered all seats. Therefore, even though FPR would become a legitimate political force in Rwanda in accordance with the Arusha Accords, or the uh, RPF, the movement had no chance to gain any governmental power as long as Javier Amano is controlling the country. After Kagame's RPF took power in Kigali, one million Rwandan Hutu refugees streamed out of Rwanda into eastern Congo, fearing revenge by the RPF. Another 250,000 Rwandan Hutus flee into Tanzania for the same reason, possible revenge at the hands of Kagame's Rwandan Patriotic Army. At that point, up to 550,000 Rwandan Hutu refugees would be housed in Tanzanian refugee camps, one of the biggest camps in the world. In ending the genocide that 
Hawker Gandhi initiated, a mass killing that claimed the lives of over half a million Tutsis and, and Hutus, and also Twa, and also other civilians, the U.S. military-trained Hawker Gandhi displaced one million within Rwanda, over half a million into Tanzania, and another one million in the eastern Congo. Many fled as Kagame's death squads fanned out across Rwanda. A particular group was heading into Burundi. This ref- there was a refugee camp at Kabeho near Genkanguru in the southwest republic of Rwanda, and it housed approximately 100,000 Rwandan Hutu refugees. Then Kagame's army came to shut it down. If you go online, people, you can find a photo. You- taken by the Australian War Museum, where, it says, where the United Nations reported that perhaps as many as 4,000 Rwandans were killed at that refugee camp. And news reporter Donatella Lorch was at the Kabehel refugee camp when the Rwandan army started shooting into the crowd of stampeding refugees. And when the parents couldn't go on, the children kept the vigil. I'll leave it there and interlude here with the song. And I'm hope I'm giving you the information the way it needs to be given. Bear with me. Let's do it. We'll, we'll play this song here in tribute to the Bahutu who were killed in the country.
That was for the estimated 40,000 Hutus in Rwanda that fell during the, the genocide as Kagame's army was coming into Rwanda. Um, and again, this isn't saying uh, who is, death is more important. This is for all three plus the civilians. You know, these are 40,000 estimated Hutus who were just happened to be in the way of the invasion as they were trying to take power. And the sad thing at that time, if you look at the records, the surviving members of the Rwandan army, because remember there were still two planes in Tanzania, those people, occupants, were forced to go into exile. They never came back. They couldn't get back to Rwanda. And a lot of the top generals were on the plane that were shot down. They tried to get Mobutu on the plane. They would have had all three presidents killed, assassinated. And after the assassination, Mobutu demanded to the UN in writing for an investigation. This, um, just visualize the whole thing, you know. That's, these are civilians. You can talk about the war, but the, the remnants of the army that was still in power in Rwanda was begging for a begging. There's records of this. Was begging for a ceasefire with, with Kagame so they can stop the genocide. It's documented. It's on record. They were saying we need to stop this. We understand the Intahamwe's out there. Well, the militias are doing what they're doing, but we need to stop this conflict between we can't stop the genocide and we can't you know, we can't stop the mass killings and fight you guys at the same time. Let's stop and fight. Um, let's stop and stop this mass murdering. Kazami's army said no. They wanted total power. As a result of that, they were sacrificed in the, to the Tutsis who grew up, on, who lived in Rwanda under Hari Miramana. If you look at Rwanda now, it's dominated by Ugandan Tutsis, as they refer to. These are the ones that came in with Kagami, and they looked at the Tutsis. Now, I say this not from my experience. I say it's talking to a lot of Tutsis from Rwanda who grew up, who lived under Hari Amana were saying this. They felt like they were sacrificed because they were saying, as, and this is from a whole people that didn't even know each other, but basically is that Kagame looked at them as though as like the people looked at the French who were collaborating with the Nazis during occupied uh, Europe, that these Tutsis must have collaborated with Hari Amana, so we're going to sacrifice them also. He wanted total power. So as a result of that, you had Tutsis that were caught in the crossfire. They had the Intohame militias to the left. Then they had Rwanda's army over here who was hurting a lot of Tutsis, civilians, innocent people, towards where, the, where they knew the militias were. They were being sacrificed. And we talk about that in the film we're doing, which we'll talk about uh, in the next show. But that's what happened. So it wasn't as though the Tutsis was just standing there and was getting gunned down. They were basically caught between a rock and a hard place and a river. All right. I remember when I was talking to a friend of mine out here in L.A., uh, Natasha Mihiro. I'm probably killing her last name. We talked about that. And she says, well, they're killing Tutsi or Bahutu or Twa. It's wrong. You know, there's always a better way. I'll never forget her saying that. And she's half Tutsi. She's half Rwanda and half Ugandan, you know. And it's, it's, it's very interesting. She said some very enlightening things. A lot of Tutsi died. A lot, of, a lot were murdered. And it's not just by the Bahutu or not just by the Intahamwe. A lot of them were murdered, were hurted were herded to where the militias were by the dominant army. I'm trying to make sure it's not political. It's not. This is for those that have died. This next musical cut here is a brief. It's a brief clip. Um, we're going to dedicate this to all the Tutsis that died innocently in Rwanda, who no follow them, who just being, as they say, not even the wrong place at the wrong time, but just being caught between many different agendas. And we're going to dedicate this as they're fleeing and running.
people that was ended my journey. The first song you heard was More Love, More Power by Michael Smith. Uh, that was dedicated to the Bahutu, the Hutus that died during the Rwandan mass killing, the Rwandan genocide, the Durant War in 1994, April 6th, on this day when it started with the plane being shot down, not crashed, it shot, was shot down. Of course it crashed, it got shot down. Uh, this song, well, you just heard, is uh, The End of My Journey, written and performed by Harry Stewart. It was actually performed live in the movie Cadence that came out in 1990. It was about a minute and 35 second clip, and he just killed it. It just rocked me when I first heard it, and people are looking for this guy. The song's never been published for whatever reason. And this guy wasn't a professional musician or actor, Martin Sheen saw him and said, hey, could you, you want to be in this film? And he was in the film. And since then, people have been moved. People are saying they want to be buried to that song, End of My Journey. It's last heard that he was homeless. So I don't think this guy, Harry Stewart, understands how many people he has touched, how many people he has moved. So I'm trying to find him just so we can, you know, figure out he can get uh, taken care of. Uh, apparently, he performed at the Salvation Army a couple of years ago, showed up, performed the song, and disappeared again. So I saw an article about him in Durham, uh, North Carolina, a couple of days ago. So I wrote the reporter, wanted to know if it was the same guy. But that song, End of My Journey, was dedicated to the Tutsis that died during the Rwanda conflict, uh, genocide, the war. Um, some people are emailing me asking me, well, you're not talking about Congo, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, really? If you go on the archives of my show, I did dedicated shows to the women of Congo, the men of Congo, the children of Congo. And particularly the women, I was reading letters from like Tina Ngangru in Miami. She's the niece of Mwezi Ngangru, Solange, uh, Monique Walden, a lot of people. That show was so emotional, I don't know how I even made the show. So if you go into the archives of our earlier shows, you'll see that I've done memorials and uh, dedications to the Congolese. Today's April 6th. Today is about Rwanda for this show here. People can take it as for what they want to do, but this is what it's about. In our remaining time, there was a third party that suffered in this, in this whole conflict. And a friend of mine, Dave Beluski, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, uh, an analyst based in Boston, he brought this up a couple of days ago. And uh, it's actually been in the news, but people tend to ignore it for some reason. Uh, the the Batwa, uh, T-W-A, uh, but we, that's, uh, that's what we call them, but they'll be called by the Western name as pygmies, but we call them, the, the, we call them in Congo the Twa, but what have you. They're the original inhabitants of Rwanda, and so many of them were murdered were slaughtered and killed during the genocide in 1994. And David Baruski posted that actually on my Facebook. You can find me there. And I asked him to put it on our Facebook page for DRCNN. Y'all subscribe over there. Just let people know, not just the Tutsi that died, the Bahutu. The Twa were murdered and died and suffered so many. And right now, they're you know, not just in Rwanda, but in Congo, they're kind of marginalized, put on the fringe of society, suffering, uh, they're suffering and you know, they're basically the original inhabitants of the region for uh, many of the areas. And as you see in Australia with the Aborigine or in Hawaii or whatever, a lot, or in even the United States here or in Latin America or what have you, and I'm sure in Europe also, that the indigenous people usually end up, end up being the ones that suffer. You know, the, the trois marginalized and pushed to the side. So many of them were killed. And I got a, uh, an email already, someone asking about Burundi. Burundi is going to be a special show in itself. I'm going to do that on its own because that's a very interesting dynamic, and I can explain to you how what happened in Burundi affected what happened in Rwanda. But, yes, at one point, Burundi, if you remember the name Paul Boyoyo, when he came to power, he was a Tutsi, led the army, because the army is dominated by Tutsis in Burundi. At one point, to make sure the Hutus were safe from the Hutu that were fighting for liberation uh, in Burundi, uh, they herded literally 85% of the Hutu population in Burundi concentration camps. And I'm not making it up. Go online. They were behind fences and gates. Even Mandela, whose government was violating arms treaty of embargo, who was selling weapons to Rwanda, which they later used on Congolese. Even he was condemning what was happening in Burundi. 85% of the Bahutu population of Burundi was housed in prison, concentration camps, literally behind gates, literally. All right? So, but that's something we're going to get into later on. Now, one thing about Rwanda we never talked about is during 1994, Rwanda is only so big. It's not that big. But at that time, the biggest arms, the biggest officer, buyer, I believe, the second biggest or the biggest was Rwanda at that time. So things were going on. We can, people can talk about the machetes coming from China and things like that. Well, look where the missiles came from and look what's arming the RPF. So let's not stop blaming anybody else. And on top of that, we have to be careful to women. People say the West didn't come to help Rwanda. 
When Kagami says the West didn't come to help Rwanda, when people went around for their own agenda is feeling guilty, saying the West should have came this, the West should have came that, and now they want to make up for that guilt by getting involved in Darfur, which we'll probably do an episode on that one day. But let's 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 start with independence. Let's start with our and my uh, younger brother Ome Congo said in one of the shows, "Free your African mind." We should stop blaming the West because my question is, where was Uganda in this whole thing? Where was Tanzania in this whole thing? Where was Kenya in this whole thing? I mean, they were a little further removed. Because people say, where was Congo? Congo was actually on the western border of Rwanda alongside the French because as Rwanda was hunt, as the RPF was hunting down the victims towards the western border, they, they were heading into Congo. The French actually, I believe it was Operation Torquest, which resulted in many of the Intahamwe and uh, remnants of the Rwandan army getting into Congo, actually came, they threatened Kagame, said, if you head more in this direction, you're going to come and combat with us. And there was a point where there was a brief... Uh, uh, battle between the French army and the Rwandan army, uh, Rwandan patriotic front in Rwanda. People forget in 1990 when General Fred Regemia, Reg, I'm, I'm sorry if I mispronounced his last name, when he, that sniper that shot him, the rumors going on that was a Congolese sniper because it was the Congolese army, then the Zairean army that was supporting and training Harvey Hamana's army. So at that point, the Zairean army had experience confronting, uh, had experience fighting Paul Kagame's army. So a lot of things we'll touch on when we do the invasion, the genocide show on the Congolese next week, all right, on the Congolese war invasion next week. We'll talk about that. Right now, this moment is for the Batwa. We can't forget that they lost many in this. So many people died. Eight Spanish nuns, eight Spaniard nuns, Spanish nuns, I mean, you know, from Spain were murdered. There's an arrest warrant out for members of Kagame's government. I believe Nimwinsi is in who, General Nimwinsi from the Rwandan army, fled to South Africa, and the South Africans want that guy because I believe he's on the indictment list, arrest warrants out for him. Um, they died. So many people died. It wasn't just about the Tutsi. It wasn't just about the Hutu killing the Tutsi. You look at Rwanda, there's a scene in there where uh, Don Chio says to his wife, uh, Sophia Okendo, I believe, on the Kendo, I think it's her last name. She goes, wait, there's the RPF. We're safe. We're, we're, we'll be safe behind their lines. Um, if you know the story, about the RPF and when it came to Hutu in Rwanda, that they saw them coming, they get them behind the lines and gun them down. There's a book I want you to go check out that actually we tried to option years ago. It didn't work out, but I really think it would be a great book for it to be made into a movie, and hopefully the doors will open again for us to uh, get that option because it would be a great book. It's called uh, Surviving the Slaughter by Marie Beatrice uh, Umatazi, I believe was her last name. It's about Surviving the Slaughter. It's about Rwanda. I believe she's Hutu. I've never really found out. She, she was testified in Washington, D.C. She's Hutu. And she testified, and she talked about how she was with children fleeing across Congo, being chased by the Rwandan Patriotic Front when they invaded Congo. She fled out of Rwanda, was being hunted down, and then with children, she was fleeing across Congo. And I said, if I can get that book, get the rights to that book, make it a movie, that was, Angela, that was Angela Bassett's Academy Award right there. Case closed, lockdown, front row. Thank you. I love you, Angela. I'm gone. But Check out that book. I believe her name is uh, Marie Beatrice Umatazi, or it might be Beatrice Marie. I think it's Marie Beatrice Umatazi. The book is called Surviving the Slaughter. Check it out. Now, in our last four minutes, let's close out. Thank you, uh, Mr. Tramp, for listening in. Thank you for everybody, everybody else for listening in. We're going to close out this song here, dedicated to the Batwa, who uh, suffered in the Rwandan genocide in 1994, which was initiated today when the plane was shot down. And by extension, we'll dedicate this song to the innocent civilians of other ethnicities and nationalities that died during that conflict. People, Saiki Kesi Dabinga, I am gone. This song is dedicated to them. Good night, and thank you for tuning in. I hope all is well.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.